Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Good to see you this morning. Um, if it were a singing contest, my section wins this morning. Yes, Rex singing his heart out. Maria, thank you. You guys did okay, but thank you. Yeah, did well. Good to see you all this morning. I see you're back, and our middle section is back this week. <laughs> this is where the Christians sit in the middle. And they sing, yeah, yeah. but uh, I see you're back because we are uh, talking about uh, love's attributes, part deux, right? And uh, uh, you guys are gluttons for punishment. I, you know, buckle up again this morning because this is good stuff, but it is rough going for all of us because we still fall short of the glory of God, but God means the best for us and has the best in mind. So, with that, uh, let's first of all pray, and then we will read our text of Scripture as we jump into 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. God, we praise you this morning for the truth that we have seen this morning, the truth of your word as we have sung it. I thank you for the bold voices in all sections, and I mean that uh, for those who are awakened this morning by the Spirit who calls to our hearts and lifts us up to heavenly places where we are seated with Christ. And we thank you that we are indeed crucified with Christ and buried with Christ and raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. So therefore we pray that you would crush Satan under our feet as the God of peace, and that you would give us uh, minds and wills to, to live for you and to love you and to love one another and our neighbors as we have been loved by Christ. And so, Father, with this, we now turn to your word and the teaching that your spirit indeed will give to us. In all these things, we pray in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, we're going to read from chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. So all scripture is inspired by God, and Jesus said, Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth, and would you pay attention, please, to the reading of God's truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 5. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. And our verse today does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Purposely reading those first three verses that we do not lose the context, for we, uh, as we have said, it's, it's easy for us to just dive into how these verses apply to our lives. And we want to remember that Paul was talking to a church, the Corinthian church, and they were warring amongst themselves, and this has to do with spiritual gifts. 
And what I want you to understand right off the bat is uh, that we are to learn positive lessons from negative examples. We need to learn positive lessons from negative examples. Um, More than half of the descriptions, love's attributes, more than half of those are negative. In fact, the ones we see this morning, love does not do this, love does not do this, Love is not this. Love is not that. So these are negative examples, and we all learn from negative examples. We should anyway. Um, Sometimes you're training for a job, and you have someone who's going to fleet you up to another job, and they don't treat people well, and so you learn how not to treat people. Maybe you had a parent, a father, a mother that was not the best. They did not know how to parent, and you may have even scars from those days. Well, when you become a parent, you say, I know what not to do. And we learn negative, we learn positive examples and positive lessons from negative examples. Um, I'm going to just ask you, um, after last week, um, were you tested this week? Were you tested? Did you notice you were tested? Uh, Boy, I did. Uh, uh, We had a, a wonderful discussion at our life group on Thursday night. And in this particular week, I happened to just throw out all the questions, and I just did my own, just just a few questions, and we had a great discussion. And then the next day, Tara and I went to dinner, or lunch, rather, at a, a, a Chinese restaurant that we, we love to go to. And it's it, there's usually never very many people in there. And when we came in the front door, there was a line. There were people waiting for takeout. And we kind of peeked our head in, and one of the ladies that was waiting said, there's only one waitress. And, and everybody was saying, yeah, but the food is good, so we want to, you know, it's, it's worth the wait. It was worth the wait. No, it wasn't worth the wait. <laughs> so we get in, and uh, there was, we were seated with a number of other people that came in behind us. And um, those people who came in behind us were waited on before us. And there was only one waitress, and the room was full. And this waitress was all over the place. She was working so very, very hard. And the whole time, you know, I'm kind of crawling because it it did take a long time for us to get our food, but we weren't alone. Everyone else in the room had the same problem. But I learned, both Tar and I talked about it afterwards, that we probably should have gone somewhere else. But it was scripted by God. God had us there to teach us and to, to say, preacher, you better practice what you preach. And I had to do that. And, I, and it, it was not lost on me in the moment that I was being tempted and I was being tested to impatience. But I also had an incredible example. This server had a smile on her face and everywhere she went. You know, at, at any minute, I thought she was just going to drop things and walk out the door. Most, you know, many would have done that. It was that bad. There, she was just way in beyond her depth, and the, the cooks were coming out and, and bringing food out to tables. And anyway, it was, uh, it was a, an incredible example of a woman in the midst of stress. And honestly, it was, it was amazing to me that the people in the room responded with patience too. I was, I was, I was flabbergasted by that many people that I would have thought that there might have been someone who said an, an unkind word, but people were saying to her, you know, hang in there, you're doing a great job. And what an example that was. And so we can learn in the midst of negative examples, and I was tested this week. So what we don't want to do, and we're going to jump right in, is we don't want to behave badly. 
And our first point from five is love does not behave improperly. Love doesn't behave improperly. That means badly. You know, I could have blown up at this lady. Anybody could have blown up. Anybody could have complained. Anybody could have walked out rudely. And some of your translations say that. The New American Standard says love does not act unbecomingly. This is not what love does. And so we have these negative descriptions, but there's a positive that love is patient in this case. But what this means is that, uh, as Thistleton said, we use some of his uh, translation, love does not behave with ill-mannered impropriety. And that's what this word, it's one word, behave uh, love, love does not act unbecomingly. It's one verb, remember. But it means to act disgracefully, to act outside of the norms of, uh, of what is accepted, outside of social and moral standards. Now, today I know that's a problem because there are no social and moral standards, are there? But we know what the, the standards are that God has set for us. Courtesy. Good taste, this word means. Good public manners and propriety. So in this restaurant, um, again, I, I, you know, any, anyone in that room could have shown ill-mannered behavior. They could have been rude. But interestingly, they were not. What do you do in a restaurant? What is your response when the food is not properly cooked? Because it wasn't in this case either. I mean, it's okay to point that out. That's, that, that's part of uh, the food service. But how do you point it out? What if there's a problem with the bill? Are you rude? Do you demand your way? Do you demonstrate the love of Christ? The world is watching, folks. They will know that we are Christians by our love in the restaurant. But you've seen it in a restaurant. You've seen people arguing in a parking lot. You've seen children treating their parents poorly in in public. You've seen parents uh, treating their children poorly in Target or Safeway or wherever. It happens. This is what we're talking about. Out in public, even in the home, of course, behaving rudely, badly, ill-mannered. That is not what we are called to. We are called to love. In Corinth, there were quarrels, there was strife. And probably the, the, the worst example of bad behavior was the man who was living with his father's wife. Talk about ill-mannered and against the social norms. And this word that Paul use here, uses here paves the way because the very end of chapters 12, 13, and 14, when he gets to the very end, the last thing he says is this, But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. This is a form of the same word in in our text today. It's in in a bad order. In in verse 14, uh, chapter 14, 40, it's in a good order. Everything be done in the church properly and in an orderly manner. Those of you who who are in the military, you know what good order and discipline is, right? It's just one of those things you know what it is. Or conduct unbecoming of an officer. I looked that up in the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and it can be punished by court-martial, but there's no description of what it is. 
But everyone knows what it is. When you are an officer, in fact, it says um, uh, conduct that is unbecoming of an officer and a gentleman. But it doesn't say by doing this, by doing this, by doing this, by doing this. In the military, you know how you're supposed to act. And as Christians, we know what true, proper behavior in Christ looks like. And when we are apart from that, that is not love. You see, the, 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 the result of this kind of a behavior is disgrace. It's embarrassment. It is shame. Have you ever felt that? Maybe you were with a family member and out in public and they just kind of blew a cork on a, on, a, on a server or blew a cork on a, someone who was uh, helping them in a store and you felt embarrassed. You felt shame on your family because... Uh, we, can, we can shame our kids, we can shame our spouse by acting improperly before other people. And so those people that are, that are associated with those, they feel that shame because it's bad behavior and it's not loving behavior. Here's a lesson for us. By God's grace, make it your goal to treat everyone as you would want to be treated. with dignity, with respect, with kindness, with courtesy. Isn't that how you want to be treated? Don't you respond well when you're treated that way? Doesn't that make you feel like you are valued and loved when people treat you that way? In fact, what did Jesus say in Matthew 7? We know this as what? Show Matthew 7 on the screen. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. What do we call this? The golden rule. The way you want to be treated, treat other people that way. Because it's interesting because he says this is the law and the prophets. Elsewhere, remember, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. Love your neighbor and yourself because this is the law and the prophets. This is love. This is what love looks like. Now, last week, one of our lessons was that um, God uses imperfect people to perfect us. And there are people in our lives that are imperfect and they're there for a reason that we would learn and we would grow. But don't make it your job to be that person, right? Some people want to be that person. Well, I know, I, I, I know that I annoy you, but you know, that's just the way I am. And besides, God is using me to perfect you. He's using me to make you a better person. Don't be that person. Don't make it your occupation to be that person. And there are some people like that, that it's just, you know, you know I'm just made this way. You know, I'm an open book. And I just, what, I, what I'm thinking, I just say, and that's just the way I am. But re- regardless if it hurts people, do you, you just say what you want to say? Do you just be the way you are? You know, let me tell you something. The, the phrase that is often said is God loves you just the way you are. That is not true. The Bible never says that. God loves you in spite of the way you are. He wants to change the way you are. And we should never want to be that person that's the thorn in the side. That's up to God to choose. It's up to us to, to learn and to grow. Second lesson is this. 
as my mother always said, behave yourself. Okay, pretty simple, right? That's the, that's the, the positive side of don't act in an unbecoming, ill-mannered way. Behave yourself. Learn positive lessons from negative examples. My mom used to always say that to me, and I always knew what she meant. There was never a doubt in my mind what, what my mother meant when she told me to behave myself. So behave in a manner that is loving, a manner that demonstrates patience and kindness and self-control. That is what we're called to. And third, our standard of behavior is never the world's and ever the way of Christ. We never pull our standard of behavior from the world and say, well, look, the world does that so I can do that. You know, this is the way it's done nowadays, okay? This is the way it's done. You've got to assert yourself and you've got to step up in there. You've got to stand for yourself. That's the way of the world. The way of Christ is always the way of humility, putting others before ourself, loving them above ourself. That is the way of Christ. And the scriptures are replete with that. So, behave yourself. Second of all, love is not self-centered. Love is not selfish. Literally, this, this means love does not seek oneself. You're not looking out for number one. Or as Thistleton said, love is not preoccupied with the interests of self. That's selfishness. Howard Hendricks, I remember hearing him saying years ago, a life wrapped up in itself makes for a very small package. Love is not preoccupied with self. Love is occupied with others. This is indeed what we're seeing here. Love is, does not seek its own. That is the opposite of agape love, isn't it? Because agape love is, is not self-centered. It's not selfishness. It's not self-interest. Agape love is interested, occupying ourselves with the needs of others. Self-centeredness relates to pride. And where there is this puffiness, where we puff ourselves up with this exaggerated view of ourselves, we'll always look down upon others. When we puff ourselves up, we lower others. And again, that's the opposite of humility. Because self-interest is eminently selfish. And this is what the Bible means by the flesh. We war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The flesh is that part of us that always seeks to, to draw us to sin, and sin is always doing what we want. The lust of the flesh, you know, those, those physical appetites of food, and, and it could be uh, food and drugs and alcohol and sex. The things that always draw us to, to getting more, the lust of the... Lust, uh, of the uh, the boastful pride of life, the others thinking that we're greater than we are. It's always about the flesh. And the only sacrifices, sacrifices that a self-serving person will make are those sacrifices that are for their own good. They will not sacrifice for others. You know, ask yourself, do you always have to have your own way? How about just once 
letting someone else have their way. Just once, just try it once, okay? Try me on this. See what happens. Because sometimes people that, that have to have their own way, they insist upon their own way. They impose their will, even on the smallest things. And sometimes the smallest things demonstrate the people who have the biggest problem with this because it's, it's about everything. They're, they're right about everything, what to eat, what show to watch, the schedule, what color, what time, how we spend our money, and they're right always about it. And obviously this ha- happens a lot in the home, right? Of course it does. But we as leaders in the church, we are not to be self-willed, we're told in, uh, in, in Titus. It's one of the qualifications of a leader. We are not to be self-willed. But the Corinthians were being self-willed. And probably uh, the greatest example of that was they were eating meat sacrificed to idols and they were saying, look, I've got the right to do this. I have the freedom to do this, and I don't care what others say. I don't care how it affects other people. I'm going to exercise my rights. And they were destroying people's faith, causing others to go back into idolatry because they were imposing their will on others. Love looks out for the interests of others without any thought to oneself. One of the other words for love is the word eros. And eros is a feeling-oriented love. And it's a love that wants to possess. When you are in love with someone, you want to have them. You want to possess them. Think about that. When you fall in love, oftentimes it's, uh, it's not so much about the other person. It's how they make you feel. But agape love is the kind of love that that seeks the best of others to help them. And we live in a in a in a in a world uh, where everybody's a victim. Everyone is a victim and yet the world tells us you need to love yourself. You need to feel good about yourself. You need to do something good for yourself. You need to show a little self-love. You don't see that anywhere in the scriptures. And people mistakenly take the the verses that say, love your neighbor as yourself. Loving yourself is not the command. The command is to love others. Because we never have to be commanded to love ourselves. Why? Because we do it naturally. And this is speaking against that, that we love others above ourselves. And by the way, when those verses are used, uh, uh, when Jesus says, um, um, love your neighbor as yourself, and when Paul says, um, husbands, love your wives as you love your own body, that's agape love. Agape love is about attitude and will. But in 2 Timothy 3.1, it says this, uses another kind of word. Realize this, Paul said, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, 
avoid such men as this. That's our world. Love, you know, how many times did lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, lovers of this? And it uses the word for Philadelphia, not agape, but it uses the word for emotion. You need to feel good about yourself. That's a cult. The cult of self-love that even Christians have bought into. We need to be careful of that because it speaks against everything that Christ was and taught. So here's a lesson, okay? Evaluate both your language and your motives when it comes to this idea of self-interest and loving others and not looking out for yourself. Evaluate both your language and your motives. Your language. Check out your pronouns. Now, that means one thing today, doesn't it? My pronouns, for most of us, my pronouns are I and me. That's what I'm talking about. They shouldn't be I and me. If all of our language where the referent is always I and me, then we might be self-centered. If all we do is talk about ourselves, if all we do is point back to us, that is not what we want to be. So we want to also evaluate our motives. Why do you do what you do? Stop and think about it when you make decisions, about your words, about your actions, about your decisions. And I know motives are tricky, aren't they? It's so hard to know why we do what we do, but we should live self-examined lives. And I think even on a daily basis, ask God, show me, search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there's, was there a hurtful way in me? And lead me in the everlasting way. Was I selfish? And sometimes when you replay yesterday, you go, ouch. Thank you for showing me that, God. I will learn by that lesson. And if your attitude is, well, I just have to do what's best for me. Be careful. Be careful. Most people for whom this is a problem, self-centeredness, they don't even know it's a problem. You know why? Because they never think of others. Because they're always thinking of themselves. And it's noteworthy that uh, many of these things involve the tongue. Have you noticed that? Involves what we say, how we, we treat uh, it's not It's not always just what we say, but it's, it's how we say things. And most of us never see ourselves as selfish, and we're quick to point out to others. And even now, we're probably thinking, oh, Ben's talking about that guy over there, and he's talking about my spouse, and he's talking about you next to me. But is God talking about me? Yes, he's talking about me and you and all of us. So uh, the warning in all of chapter 13 is look to yourself. We're good at qualifying. Well, yeah, I was thinking of myself, but, you know, there was a good reason for that. We're really good at that, aren't we? Again, some of the, the common counseling advice, and I give it to people sometimes depending upon the situation, is you may have to do what's best for you. But our second lesson is this. Doing what's best for others may indeed be what's best for you. 
If you live by the mantra, I need to do what's best for me, you got it upside down. But you see, if you do what is best for others, it may indeed be what's best for you because God blesses obedience. And God makes us holy when we sacrifice. And God changes us and God blesses others when we choose to put them before ourselves. So it may be the best thing for us in the end, in the long run, but we should always think of others first. Doing what's best for others may indeed be what's best for us in the long run, but in the short term, it may not be the best for us. It may hurt. It may cost us. But we do it anyway. Two, two other lessons that are scriptural lessons in this section. Number one, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Philippians 2.3. It's a lesson in itself. Don't do anything that's motivated by selfishness or conceit because it's empty. Be humble. And think of others as more important than yourself. Jesus did. Second of all, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. In other words, I just need to do what's best for me. But also for the interests of others. Why have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus? Philippians 2, 4 through 5. In Romans 15... It says, for even Christ did not please himself. He didn't come to please himself. He came to suffer and die to show us how to live, how we might suffer and find life, find what love really is. So love does not act unbecomingly, and it does not seek its own. And third, love is not irritable. It is not provoked. We put it this way. Love is not easily provoked to anger. The other side of it is love is calm and slow to anger. That's the other side of it. Love is calm and it is slow to anger. But some people are just touchy, easily angered, ready to take offense. How are you doing today? What did you mean by that? (laughs) You must have some ulterior motive. And asking me that question. And some people just are thin-skinned, easily angered. This word um, is used, provoked, in a positive way in Hebrews 10. It says, and let us consider how to provoke, how to stimulate one another to what? Love and good deeds. How? By, not by forsaking our assembling together, but all the more as we see the day drawing near. When we come together, we provoke one another, not in, not in an irritable way, but we, we provoke and stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's the purpose of worship and fellowship. This is about anger. Easily provoked to anger, outbursts. One of the qualifications of an elder is not quick-tempered. And if any man wants to, you know, wants to rise to that position of, uh, of elder, he must learn to control his spirit and his anger and his temper. And this is really quite the opposite of patience, isn't it? 
patience puts up with others. But the one who is provoked has no patience with others and is thin-skinned. And some of the Christians were provoked to anger and the divisions and the quarrels and divorce. You know why people get divorced? Because they never resolve conflict. There's anger. There's something that happens. And if they resolved it, they wouldn't get a divorce, right? But they never resolve the anger that is there. And the Corinthians were, some of them were provoked. Being long, long-tempered is what it means. But there are some people that are thin-skinned, and I'm talking to you, and you know who you are. You can find a reason to be angry about anything. Because of what someone said or because of what someone did not say. Because of what someone did or because of what someone did not do. So learn patience. And here's the lesson for us. Learn the part of patience that passes over minor offenses. Not everything is worth fighting about. You don't have to bring up everything as we need to talk. We need to talk again. If, that, if your relationship is, if that describes your relationship to a T, it is sad because that has become the definition of what your relation is, is we need to talk. But not everything is worth fighting over. And this is, we need to learn that kind of patience that just passes over minor offenses. You know, I think we do pretty well as a church because I don't think we have a lot of infighting and there may be some that I'm not aware of. But I see on social media, Christians can be pretty vicious. Easy, easy to find fault theologically and quick to point that out. This is wrong because of blah, 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 blah. And the world probably looks at that and they go, oh, those Christians, they're always tearing each other apart. But there are some people that are just perpetually offended. That is just their mentality. That's the way of their life. And they'll make an issue out of everything. This could be in relationships, in theology, in anything. Some people just like to nitpick everything, and everything provokes them. But the next lesson then helps us. You, we are responsible for a godly response to ungodly offenses. People are always going to disappoint you. People always say things and do things and not say things and not do things that can be irritable, that may be wrong, may even be sin. But Peter said, do not return evil for evil or insult for insult. Anybody know the second part of that verse? But giving a blessing instead. It's, you see, it's like we said last week, patience is withholding, kindness is filling the void. No insult for insult, injury for injury, but giving a blessing instead. And the third lesson in this section is, you know this, the hardest place to be holy is the home. It's easy to be on our best behavior here this morning, right? It is. And, and I think we do pretty good. I hope it's true most of the time. I hope we're not a bunch of fakery going on. To a certain extent, we're all hypocrites, I know. But the people we love the most, we sometimes hurt the most. Isn't that true? 
It just is. In the hardest place to not be irritable, the hardest place to not be selfish, the hardest place to not act unbecoming is the home. In our life group the other night, we were talking about this, and uh, one of our one of our group members said that she thought the reason for this, and I think she was right in most cases, because we know that they will forgive us. We know that the people that love us, they're going to forgive us, and they will in most instances, if everything is working properly within the home. But we, we must never presume on the grace of our spouse or our children or the grace of God. I'm going to act bad, badly knowing that God will forgive me, knowing that my wife will forgive me, knowing that my children will forgive me. No, we must learn not to be irritable. We must learn to be loving. So if you are the one who is irritable, touchy, easily angered, ask yourself why. Take some time and talk to God. What is that source? What is that anger? Find out what it is and have, maybe talk to someone about it, but find a way to deal with that anger. James 1 says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Find a way to be holy in your home. It's, it's hardest. That's what we're tested the most. But pay attention. God is testing you. God is trying you. God is growing you in those close relationships. The last one, uh, the last attribute of love this morning in verse 5 is that love does not keep score. Love does not keep score. Or as Thistleton says, love does not keep a reckoning of evil. Because the word, it's, it's, uh, it's one word again. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. But the, the, the taking into account was a, uh, an accounting term. Counting up things. The word in Romans 4 was used in a positive way. Abraham believed God and it was credited to, uh, credited to him as righteousness. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. Here in the negative, we are crediting others' sin to themselves. God doesn't do that with us. Love doesn't keep track of evil. Does not keep score of wrongs. Jay Adams, uh, a Christian counselor and author, tells a story of a couple that came into to his office for some counseling. And the, the woman's doctor had suggested that they get marriage counseling because she had an ulcer for which there was no physical cause. She came in and she slammed down on his desk uh, a one-inch thick binder that was full of eight and a half by 11, single-spaced, typed on both sides, 13 years of all the offenses of her husband. This is the reason. Don't do that. A little bit of a friendly advice. Don't do it in a notebook. Don't do it in your head. Don't do it in your heart. Love does not do that. That's not love. Does God treat us that way? 
Is God up there checking boxes and writing, you know, taking names like Santa Claus? <laughs> it doesn't do that, does it? Do you keep score? But the language, think about it. Well, you know, I owe him one. Well, fine. If that's the way they're going to be, two can play at this game. Turn it around. Does God treat us that way? And he does not. This doesn't mean that we never confront people with wrongdoing. But if you're always confronting, always bringing up the offense, always, yes, we need to talk. If it's, if it's repeated and it's serious and it's unrepented of, of course we need to talk about those things, but not everything. And the Corinthians apparently kept score. One of, the, one of the ways was when they were taking one another to court. And Paul said, don't you have anybody in the church to, to, to help you decide these things? And he said, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and you do this even to your brethren before the world, and the world looks at us and laughs. Sometimes we just don't do that. The lesson is this, love forgives. That's Love forgives. That's what he's saying. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered, which means in the positive, love forgives. That's what we're really talking about. And when someone sins against you, you have two choices. You can talk to them about it, but if you choose not to, you must forgive them. You must forgive them. But if you don't talk to them to work it out, you do not have the right, because the cross has taken that right away, you do not have the right to hold it against them. You don't. And that's where resentment leads to bitterness. When we do not forgive over and over and over again. God is gracious. God is forgiving. And he doesn't overlook our sin because our sin is taken care of at the cross. Secondly, forgive then as you have been forgiven. Forgive in the same way, to the same extent, in the same manner that you have been forgiven. And how is that? How are you forgiven? Completely. Unconditionally. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children... And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Forgiveness is sacrificial. Forgiveness is love. Forgiveness is found in Christ, and that is the basis for our forgiveness. By the way, in verse 5, it says, Do not take into account... And there's a definite article here. It says, the wrong, the evil that you have suffered. It's, it's not some imaginary thing. Well, I'm just imagining, and, and so I'm going to let it go. No, you have been sinned against. Paul is saying, it's true. 
You may have an evil, and the word, uh, it, it means evil. There may have been an evil perpetra- perpetrated against you. So, and he says, it may be real. Forgive it. It's not in your imagination. It really happened. But love does not keep score. So, it is not up to us to balance the books and even the score. Right? Amen? It's not up to us. Why? Because of our last, our conclusion. It is finished. If it was finished for me, it's finished for you. If it was finished for you, it's finished for you and for you and for you and for us. We don't balance the books. The score is settled with the cross of Christ. And that's what communion is all about. I know your toes are bruised this morning. So are mine. But we come to the healing balm, don't we? We come to that fountain that cleanses us, that forgives us, and proclaim the death of Christ in those words. And again, in... It's wonderful. You know, we have the English words, it is finished in, in, in Aramaic and in, in Greek. One word, tetelestai. It is finished. The debt is paid. There is no score to settle. There isn't anything that can be done, must be done. It is done through Christ. If you know Christ, I invite you to the table to remember that this is why we do what we do. This is what we're talking about this morning. It's this. It's the cross of Christ. It's Christ crucified and raised and coming again for us. And we are to live that way. He loved us that we would love one another. By this would all men know that we are his disciples, that we love one another. In Corinth, they came to this sacrificial meal, to the bread and to the cup, and they were selfish, and there were quarrels, and they were angry. Can you imagine people in the back of the room, you know, arguing, you know, I was here first, give me that, I want to sit there. It happened. I praise God for you all. I praise God that you're not self-centered, that you serve the Lord at Valley Bible Church, and that we have a, a love for one another that is demonstrable and obvious when you walk in these doors. But let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. This is both the saving grace and the transforming grace. It's what saves us from sin, and it's what transforms us from sin into Christ-likeness. We thank you, Father, for Christ's death and resurrection his body, his blood, the bread and the cup. And Lord, with great fear and trepidation, we thank you for the forgiveness that's ours in Christ. And we thank you that you've forgiven us for the ways that we have failed to love. And now we take a moment for your Holy Spirit to wash over us as we pray. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me that we might confess this to you at once 
and partake in a worthy manner.